can you do this? B, how would you do it? And three, I did A, B, and three. <laughs> Should you do Man, it? Man, it's just that kind of night, isn't it? Hello and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me tonight, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing this fine evening, sir? Well, I'm debating whether I want to research haste or time stop, but uh, in general, I'm doing pretty well. How are you tonight, Michael? I'm not doing too bad. It's the uh, holiday weekend, Memorial Day specifically. Uh, We were supposed to record yesterday, but that didn't happen. So both of us have made some time in our schedule on Sunday to record. And I will note that I do have a house full of guests, including a puppy, not ours, the in-laws. So if you hear more noise bleeding through my audio than usual, uh, that is what that is. I will do my best to cut it out. How about you, Caleb? How are you uh, having fun this holiday weekend? Uh, any, any gaming, I should ask? No gaming, because it's it's only our profession. Why would I actually get to do it in real life? No. <laughs> no, no. My holiday weekend is working and car repairs. Yeah, I saw that on your Twitter. You were having car issues, man. It sucks. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, you know, I, I just need to get those spells ready to go. Maybe they'll help out. <laughs> awesome. Well, we are on a time crunch, so let's just get right into things except for as we always do we have to take a step back and say why we're here. Kelvin and I like to use these table topics to try to share some of the advice that he and I have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs but we know that the advice that we share and the opinions that we give are not applicable at every table every time but there is one piece of advice that we do feel is generally universal and Caleb what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what game you play, what system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, you're playing the game correctly. So with that out of the way, we have a couple quick Akatacon announcements, uh, as well as some network announcements. We'll be very brief, and then we're going to get right into our topics. So first of all, we would like to give an official welcome to the newest addition to the RPG Academy Network. And that would be Quinn and company over at the Swallows of the South podcast. Welcome, Quinn. Huzzah! Huzzah! Uh, If you are not familiar with this podcast, it's fairly new. They only have about 16, 17 episodes out at this point. They play a game of Exalted, uh, which does not have a U in it for some reason. If you spell it and you put a U in there, you'll be made fun of. Saying that for a friend. Uh, (laughs) But it's a very interesting setting. Uh, It's got a lot of rich flavor. I don't know much about the mechanics just yet, but I know good DMing or good GMing when I hear it, and Quinn's got that in spades. Um, I love the characters that are brought to the table um, as well, so I just, I'm just i very excited to bring those guys into the fold and welcome them with open arms. And seriously, guys, I binged every episode of Swallows of the South in about a week. The show is outstanding. The players are adept at being goofy and silly and switching over to epic amazing action and really intense interpersonal drama quinn is a brilliant gm he does the voice work i wish i could do you and me both yeah well you do a pretty good impression of me i've heard (laughs) surprisingly yeah that's the only one you can't nail jamaican but you sure as hell can nail caleb (laughs) phrasing uh, <laughs> yeah, um, Swallows of the South is outstanding. It is a narrative-heavy game that still has a serious amount of crunch. I have just started learning the mechanics of it, and I'm blown away by how detailed and in, uh, in-depth they are, but still how really easy they are to just spin into the story. And this the stuff we do where... Uh, you know, we're trying to get a big narrative moment and just get away from some of the, oh, I, I roll to attack and then I move. These guys have surpassed that. It is amazing to listen to. And I also, I really like that they practice 
a lot of the things that we have sort of suggested that you do. And I love to hear that in more than maybe we do. Uh, but the, hey, you're going to the docks. One of you knows the dock master. Which of you knows? How do you know them? And then they just work that into the narrative. I love that type of play. Obviously, it's a style. Not everyone's comfortable with that style, and that's okay. But that's the type of style I enjoy running and enjoy playing, so I like to hear it. And it's so subtle, you don't even really feel that moment of, hey, create something right now. These guys just work it into, uh, well, I don't want to say guys exclusively, the, uh, the group of players works their skill at improv and performance into the game brilliantly. According to Quinn, none of the players have ever played role-playing games before, let alone Exalted. So this is a, a brand new experience. These are brand new players to the role-playing hobby, let alone the specific game, the specific setting. And I, I just can't gush enough about how great this podcast is. Absolutely. And it is, of course, we are very proud to have them as part of our network. And uh, I'm also very proud that Quinn, as well as Chris and Kendall from the Redemption podcast, which was the second most recent podcast to join the network are all going to be at a catacon. So uh, if you want to check out their podcast and you like what you hear, and then you would like to spend some time with them, you're going to have that opportunity at a catacon, which is my way of transitioning into a catacon news. That was a great transition. Nailed it. Uh, so just a couple quick things. Again, we are still continuing to sell badges. We have our first post Kickstarter uh, badge sale. So if you go to uh, Eventbrite and search Acaticon, you can find the badges there. If you go to our website, theacaticon.com, there's a link that will take you straight to there. Uh, the the badges are basically the same price. They're, they're a little bit higher because there's some fees that Eventbrite tax on. And then we also have some game stores that we're talking to that are going to sell them for us as well. Currently, Epic Loot is already on board. I have a couple others that I'm talking to that I expect will. We just need to finalize how the logistics of that will work. Uh, but yeah, we still want to sell about another 100 badges. We would really like to try to get to that 300 mark. Uh, and then the last uh, Catacon news, unless Caleb has something, Tim Wagoner, who you may or may not know, he is an author local to Dayton. I'm familiar with him from the Blade of the Flame series, which is an Eberron set series of novels uh, that he wrote. Uh, he teaches in Dayton, and, uh, you know, obviously he's a published author and gamer. So he's going to come out and join us and play some games, and he wants to do some writing workshops as well while he's there. So very excited to bring Tim on board as part of our special guest. So, Caleb, do you have any announcements, a Catacon-related or other, before we get into the show? No, I think I'm, I'm fresh out of announcements today. I'll try to bake some up for next time. Fantastic. So I did lie. We do have one last announcement. Oh. We are closing in on our 100th Table Topic episode. This will be episode 95. We are still looking for some questions that we can answer. We want to make that episode pretty much an entire mailbag episode. So if you would like to send us in a question that's uh, tweetable, just tweet at us and then tag it TT100. That way we can go back and find them all. Hashtag. Or if you, hashtag. Hashtag. I said tag. I think hashtag is... The vernacular has expanded a tag. I don't. I don't know. I don't know if society has evolved that far yet. You're making <laughs> some assumptions about the human population. All right. Hashtag the questions TT100 so we can find them, or if you would like to email them if they're a little bit longer than 140 characters or you, there's some more nuance to it, you can email those to us at Michael at the RPG Academy or Caleb at the RPG Academy or Podcast at the RPG Academy. Any of them doesn't matter. Just put in the subject line. TT100 so that we know that's what it's for, and then we will earmark it for that episode. And the questions don't have to be simply about gaming. They can be about the show, about us, about previous episodes, about anything. Pretty much. We're going to do our best to answer them all uh, to the best of our ability. I can't promise that we will answer all of them, but we are going to try. Okay, so now with that out of the way, we are going to move into tonight's topics. We have two really good ones, I think. Uh, both of these come from online resources. Uh, the first is from uh, Twitter follower at GameDisc, also in Scott. And he was asking for some advice, and we're going to discuss it. I can't promise we're going to answer his question, but we're going to try. About um, he's playing a game, and one of the characters in the game is going to play a CCG-type game in, in the game. So it's sort of like... Um, inception level going on here so basically imagine you're playing DD &D and your bard plays pokemon or magic the gathering and they want to make that in-game 
game more important than just I roll and I get a higher number so I win my match. They want to make it more strategy component, more involved, where they can choose to play this type of deck and they might have an advantage against this type of deck, that type of thing. So, Caleb, I will start with you. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Is this a good idea or not? And it, regardless of whether you think it's a good idea or not, which I do want your opinion on, do you have any thoughts on how you could accomplish this outside of just roll a d20? If your number's higher, you win. Let's move on. Okay. So I think a game within a game is usually very worthwhile because it adds to a level of the reality of the game world. There are plenty of examples of uh, of games within games happening. If we go back to the older Dungeons & Dragons days, uh, Three Dragon Ante was a thing. They produced the physical game so that people could buy it and learn to play it. And then in some of the fiction and flavor, they incorporated, hey, maybe your adventurer walks into a tavern and they're playing a game. Hey, maybe it's Three Dragon Ante. And there was a whole supplement about how to physically use the real cards you had in the real world for your game characters. Uh, there's always been the theoretical application of games within the games. In older editions, uh, you could invest skill ranks into gambling or anything like that. Uh, in 5th edition you can have proficiency in gaming tools, right? Uh, you can, and you can define whatever you want it to be. So the, that aspect of tabletop role-playing has always been there. Is it always a good idea? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, specific to this question, before I even theorize about how we want to do it, I want to know why. In my mind... You can do anything you want at the table. You should always be open to doing whatever you want. But I always want to know why it's important. Is playing this card game just something cool you want your character to do? Or is this something that becomes integral to the plot? And, and I think if it's, if it's really important to the plot, then that defines a slightly different way to handle it than oh, I just think it's the flavor of my character and I want to bring it up from time to time. Depending on how important it is, that defines how much attention you give it in mechanics and application in, and the game. What do you think, Michael? Am I totally off base here? No, that's actually kind of my first thoughts as well because I have played in games where we have done very similar with poker. You know, I've, I've had many characters that have been proficient in gambling that we want to make that part of the game. And I have played games where it was just a die roll. I have played games where we would physically break out a deck of cards and play several hands of real life poker. And we would allow the players that were proficient with poker to cheat essentially like you roll. And let's say I beat you, then I get to just take two extra cards to try. I still try to have to beat you in the, in the real world, but I get additional benefits because of my skill challenge. I can get extra cards or manipulate the board game in some way. So I've done completely both ends of the spectrum. And generally speaking, neither one was very fun. Obviously, there's concessions with who was running the game, who was playing, you know, how we presented it. But in both cases, the, the one was it was too simple. No one had fun because it was just dice, dice rolling. But when it came to the poker, I'm an avid poker player. I think I mentioned before, before I got into the RPG podcast, my big hobby was playing poker. And I enjoy playing poker a lot, probably too much, some would say. Uh, but I've seen your basement. It's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you're not into poker, then this is just really freaking boring. And, and I would equate it to the same thing. Like if someone is an herbalist and they want to go spend two hours of game time out in the woods searching for regents and, and um, uh, uh, recipes and, you know, finding the right type of mushroom and the right type of, of plant, that's great as a background thing. But as a player, I don't want to spend game time with you doing that. To me, that's a, I roll a D20, narrate what you do for three days in the woods and you come out with what you need. So I... I would caution against it in general, but again, in this case, he, he really wants us to be important, so I'm going to assume that it's worth doing. And I think something to consider here is 
playing a game within a game that has such a physical real-world component like a trading card game, we are really questioning the metaphysical philosophical differences about what it means to roleplay. When I'm playing pretend, I'm playing as my wizard, my fighter, my barbarian, whatever, and I'm trying to act like that character would act. And I have these skills and abilities that are completely foreign to me. But if I say in the game, my bard picks up a deck of Pokemon cards and we're playing Pokemon, I have that in the real world. And it's not, it's no longer, I have to imagine what it's like to make a knowledge arcana check. I have to imagine what it's like to cast Fireball. I'm now physically doing a thing that I can do in the real world. And specifically in a game that relies on strategy, I'm playing the game as myself, right? I'm not playing, I can't play a game how someone else would play it. We can play a role-playing game and pretend to think like a bard or a cleric or a paladin would think and try to create that cognitive level of dissonance. But when I'm picking up a game that relies on years of experience and practice, specifically in a trading card game where I'm relying on the luck of the draw, knowing my deck, being able to skillfully predict the card combos I need, trying to anticipate what my opponent is going to do, I'm no longer role-playing as someone doing the thing. I'm just doing the thing. Unless I'm just such a bad role-player, I can't figure out how to do that. And I'm willing to admit it. I'm willing to admit, yes, I am unable to role-play another character doing a thing that I physically know how to do. Well, to me, that that's equates to trying to role-play a character who's smarter than you. Yeah. Again, I, I like to think I'm a smart guy. I don't know that in game terms I have an 18 intelligence equatable. So if I play a character with 18 intelligence, how do I do that? One is I have more time. You know, someone who's really smart would, would just know the answer. I can take 10 minutes to figure out the puzzle, but in the game terms, we can still say I, I figured it out instantly. But there's not a lot of ways to role play someone smarter than you. So it, it's kind of along the same lines. It, it's easier to go down. I can just intentionally make bad choices, knowing that they are bad choices, uh, or jump to illogical conclusions, uh, like Army does quite a lot in, in the game. I'm, I, I know that Tobin was not really in on it, and he was a victim, but my character thinks Tobin was an a-hole, and he was in on the plot, and I hate him. Sorry, sad there. Uh, <laughs> but that's easier to do. Playing up is a little bit harder. But okay, but, but we're, still, we're going to do it, though. So what can we give Scott as some practical advice, a couple different ways that he could do this since he wants to, or at least point him in the right direction. You mentioned Three Dragon Annie already, so possibly we could just say, just go look at how they did that, and that, that might be the answer right there. And in my experience, and I'm probably wrong, but Three Dragon Ante was basically poker. But it was kind of a poker with a tarot card deck, which is how tarot cards were originally used. It was just all flavored with Dungeons & Dragons, and basically, Wizards of the Coast said, hey, instead of saying random commoner in the tavern is playing random card game, we're going to brand that card game so we can sell it. Capitalism. <laughs> Capitalism. So the, the translation of that to this topic is just play the game. I mean, if, if, your if your player says, my character wants to play this cool trading card game, I'm pretty sure it's a logical assumption that the player knows how to and enjoys playing some type of trading card game. Play the game. Easy. That one's done. Well, and you could still equate it to how you build your deck. Uh, and again, I'm not that familiar with, with Pokemon. I'm more familiar with Magic the Gathering, but I still, when I played it, I was a very casual player, so I don't really get into a lot of the meta, you know, this type of deck versus this and that kind of thing. Uh, but... You know, you could just say, okay, you're going to start with a very base deck, but in game, if you accomplish certain things or you spend time or you spend resources, you can then physically add those cards into your actual deck that you will then at the opportune moment, I'm going to suggest not that often, play an actual hand of the game uh, versus the DM or another player. And that will be, you know, how you show the results. You could still allow some manipulation for die roll. 
to show that you are very skilled in the game. And, you know, if you roll really high, you do get to cheat a little bit. You get to add extra cards into your hand or draw and, and then remove cards to sort of simulate an advantage that you don't actually have. But yeah, there's always the option of just playing the game. I would caution you about doing that too often, though. I, I think the why plays a lot of importance here. If your player wants his character to play this card game in the game as his or her profession, then the intent is that the player is earning money doing this. If the intent is, I just want to do something cool, then yeah, break it out every once in a while. If the intent is, my character joined this tournament because he thinks one of the other players in the top-ranked team in the world killed his father and he's hell-bent on revenge, that's also a little bit different. That's actually driving the story at that point. So really that why, again, is super, super important. Another thing to consider, based off of playing just the real version of the game, a lot of trading card games have online games nowadays, on the computer, on a phone app, something like that. Maybe you could have your player playing this game and then look at the overall ranking or the score and translate that into the game. So take the real-world skill and the real-world competition and then just translate those results. So maybe something like, okay, let's say your player is just trying to make money. Okay, so we'll say in the background of the adventure, uh, he or she has been playing for, we'll just look at one week of game time. So, so you go off at the end of, on Saturday, John, Johnny player, Johnny, you tell me your ranking on Saturday. Because all apps have ranking and achievements and crazy stuff like that. There's always some arbitrary number assigned to tell you how bad you are compared to everyone else in the world. So on Saturday, Johnny, tell me what your score in the game is. And then I, as the GM, am going to translate that to, okay, you got paid 100 gold this week. And you're now the fifth best player, so you have these variety of resources now available to you. That's an idea. Yeah, actually, I, I really like that. It's, uh, it's a simple way to let your actual skill... It, it sort of seems like backwards of my, my original thought would be making trying to take the game and bring it out into the real world. You're taking the real world and pushing it down into your game. I really, I really like that a lot. It reminds me somewhat of um, Star Wars Nazi Old Republic when you could play Sabacc in that game and you could get um, cards and they, you actually played the game as a mini game and you could win and get, you know, plot directions uh, by doing so well and, and unlocking certain things, but you also could find certain cards by doing certain quests and you could buy certain cards. So uh, that's kind of one of the things I was thinking of. So besides playing in the real world and pushing into the game and playing in the game and pushing it the real world, uh, the thought I had was to be kind of do it like crafting like the old crafting rules, in that you were assumed to be working towards this. I think that's kind of what you were talking about in a way, but this will be the game version. You spend so much money to assume that you're gambling, winning some, losing some, you're buying new cards, you're finding new cards, and once a week you make your roll, and that tells you how well you did. And that could also tell you maybe you unlock cards, we could kind of combine some, where if you roll well enough, then you get to add a new good card into your physical deck that you're going to play. Because I guess what I'm thinking of is that throughout the course of the campaign, there's going to be lots of matches that aren't important enough to physically play. But at some point, there's going to be that tournament that's part of the story as a whole where everyone's going to be involved. Like against that tournament, there's another player who's, an, uh, who's a re important for other reasons besides just this game. Everyone in the party is going to have roles to play that, you know, there might be a heist that's happening at the same time, an assassination attempt that's happening at the same time. So you've got different people throughout an Ocean's Eleven type, type situation, but one player is actually playing the game and they have to be good enough to get to the finals. So in my mind, that's how I would want to do it. Leading up to that, not that important. We can just roll some dice. We can we can make it like a crafting rules. But that final game is going to be much more important. And we probably will break out the physical cards there. 
And then the other thing I was thinking, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you because you're probably better at explaining it, but is, is to make it an extended skill check or skill challenge, like from fourth edition. Yeah, th- those are definitely good ways to try this. Making it a an equivalent, an analogy to the crafting mechanic, it's almost also like ritual spellcasting. You're, you're gathering components, you're doing something that takes a long time, but you're doing it over time. So the concept of doing a little bit here or there or making a couple skill checks here or there and translating it into the big picture that might be part of it the extended skill check or skill challenge i like that idea too from fourth edition it was kind of a way to get everybody involved it was a okay we need five successes before three failures or some other ratio that you feel is appropriate based on the difficulty level. And everyone in the party could simply narrate their participation. So if we're in the woods trying to survive, we need, let's make it simple, three successes before two failures. The ranger says, okay, well, I'm going to use my survival skill and find a path through the woods. So then that player rolls a check, success or fail. The paladin says, well, I am going to be vigilant while the ranger is searching, so I'll be doing uh, the bodyguard work, the protection. The paladin has no skill, arguably, that defines to surviving in the woods, but the player gets to narrate how his or her character still participates in succeeding at this challenge. So it gives everyone a chance to participate. We could translate that into... Okay, Johnny, you are doing this extended skill challenge to win this week of tournament in the game within a game. So you are going to need to make a total of X checks that are successful before Y failures occur. Tell me how you use your different skills. Now, in my mind, 5th edition might make this more challenging because 5th edition has a lot less skills and they're a lot more broad. So you'll need to invent some other skills or define some sort of, okay, you can use the same skill multiple times, but you have to really narrate how each use is different kind of thing. Sure. Uh, In the old 3.5 edition days, you could add in a ton of other skills very easily. The whole skill point and skill ranks thing really let you take a lot of liberties. You could physically make a skill that was just, I play this game. But you could also use things like bluff and sleight of hand and intimidate and diplomacy, things like that. That all still exists in 5th edition, don't get me wrong, it's still there, but it's buried under a couple layers. So if you really want to do this kind of thing with 5th edition... You have to unpack the skills a little bit and get into it. I think doing a skill challenge like this is a nice middle ground because you're still doing things within the mechanics of Dungeons & Dragons, but you're applying it to a new... I don't want to say a new application because then I'm applying it to an application and that doesn't feel right (laughs) to me, but you know what I mean, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um I think you could do that too. And you could still have the, the entire party engaged because you could have your other party members scoping out your competition. Mm-hmm. So somebody else could go watch the, you know, again, I'm going back to the tournament scenario. You probably have your clear favorite, the person that is supposed to win the inevitable final match will come down to you and that other person. We all know that going in. So maybe someone is assigned just to watch them and see, are they cheating? How are they cheating? If they are cheating, what is the meta of their deck? I don't know enough about that to really articulate it, but you could have someone roll really well and go, oh, okay, you know, in the second match, they always use their sideboard to bring in, you know, blah, 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 technobabble, but that would still give your player information on how they could, the second match, whether they win or lose, how they adjust their deck accordingly, that could give them another plus one to their roll or give them advantage on the roll if it's fifth edition. So I really like this, the extended skill challenge because it can still include everybody, but maybe the active player does every other role. So it's not every equal, you know, equitable, but it's me, one of you, me, one of you, until we still get to the right number of successes. I really like this idea you've been bringing up, the application within the game. 
making it that Ocean's Eleven heist, and you have to play this game to distract the guards or distract the guy whose vault you're breaking into. I'm more excited by that potential story (laughs) than how we figure out these mechanics. I think that would be a great thing to build towards, and I hope that's what this actual question is about. Because if that's the case, then this idea spawns a whole series of quests within the game. Because then you can have missions about, okay, let's follow this guy around town and see what he's doing. Hey, let's research why he's so good. Hey, suddenly you're being attacked by thugs. Are they assassins hired by the guy you're going to fight tomorrow in the game because he doesn't want you to win? Where Where's this attack coming from? All these little stories get unpacked and revealed. I think that's really cool. I was going to say something else based on what you're saying, and I just totally forgot. I do that all the time. Well, I, I think it also matters on if everyone is participating or not. If everyone at your tabletop role-playing game table says, hey, we love this card game, let's bring it into the tabletop game, and they all have their decks, then that's really easy to just play games. You can play that and play it as your character and come up with some sort of resource reward. Hey, if you guys win, you can pick up some extra gold. Hey, if you guys win, you have some notoriety. And in the next town, you'll get a free stay at the inn or something like that. Or, hey, you guys are so good, now you have enemies and someone's going to start following you. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. You could also, if you really want to get into it, maybe kind of make up a new mechanic. Maybe kind of a rock, paper, scissors analogy to define how your deck is built. A lot of times in games like this, there's a hierarchy of the elements or the powers within the game. So in Magic, you have the five elements. They don't necessarily trump one another in a certain order, but that concept is still there. Well, they they play off each other. That's part of the meta. Like if I know everyone's playing white weenie decks, then I may need to play a a certain type of deck, depending on what's legal and blah, blah, jargon, jargon, jargon. Exactly. But yeah, knowing the type of deck that your opponent is going to play or most likely to play will help you build yours. And that was one of the things Scott specifically brought up is he wanted that to somehow be relevant so that, you know, if I know my opponent is likely playing a white deck just to go on magic terms, then I should be able to react appropriately and have a greater advantage. But then if they switch up and play a a deck I wasn't expecting, then I have negatives or some sort. So what if you then basically make a little hierarchy chart on on a piece of paper and say, okay, uh, a red deck beats a white deck, a white deck beats a blue deck, et cetera, et cetera. Like make a, a rock, paper, scissors kind of circle of who beats what or... Okay, a white has a plus one versus a blue, uh, but a blue has a neg one versus a black. Make up this this map, this chart, and then tell your player, okay, so going into this game, pick a deck. Okay, that, that defines who you are and where your bonus comes from. Now we're going to roll against an opponent. Uh, I'm going to say your opponent has a secret deck that you don't know what it is, so you don't know if you can prepare or change. You You can make these assumptions and try to figure that out i think we could sit down and make a huge example of that but that would take a long time (laughs) right but i think that goes back to the skill challenge thing that works great where someone's watching how they play so so maybe you roll well on your skill check so then i say rather than he's going to play one of five decks i tell you it's one of two He's either going to start with the blue or he's going to start with the red because he's done that in every match. First game, it's always been one of those two. So then you have a much better chance of success where maybe if you blow that roll, then you have no idea and it's more of a guess. Right. And then that would allow you to incorporate other character skills. So there's your diplomacy to try to talk to this guy's friend and try to get some hints out of him. There's your intimidate to try to bully the tournament judge into giving you some information. Um, So yeah, that definitely requires more work though, because you have to make up this hierarchy and define the bonuses and penalties. And the players have to know it. It can't just be something you as the DM know. You have to share so they can use that to their advantage. But that's also something you can get the player involved with. Hey, help me create this and we'll work on it together. 
and then we can apply it in the game. So it gets everyone involved and engaged. Yep, I really like that. The last thing that I would suggest would be to steal mechanics from another game. Always worthwhile. <laughs> Always worthwhile, but specifically dueling mechanics. I think, uh, I know in Deadlands, there is the gunfighter, like the, the gunfight duel rules are completely separate from everything else. They still work similarly, but they are not exactly the same as everything else. And I'm pretty sure that L5R also has dueling mechanics oh as well. we know that that game has dueling mechanics <laughs> but but i don't know if they're necessarily separate from regular combat or not uh i don't i just don't recall but but try to see if there's another game that emulates a very tense back and forth okay so my i choose this stance could be i choose the white deck okay since you chose the white deck the other person has a chance to respond they do x so it doesn't come down to just one role but it's a give and take back and forth they can build tension until the ultimate climax and i just think that absolutely would be a great way to go about doing it as well it's also going to take more time and effort because you're going to have to find the correct dueling mechanics that you want to use adjust them to your game and make sure they make sense so it's time and effort but i think that might be my favorite option that's definitely a very good option but you also have to recognize that that does take time at the table so if not every player is engaged in this tournament if not every player is interested in having this card game if it is not yet at a point where it matters to the overall plot that could be a moment of, okay, well, everyone go get pizza, and I'm going to sit here with Johnny and roll some dice. That's also something that could be done over email, though, or our chat in, in a between-game session kind of thing. Yeah, I think in my mind, I'm still re relating this to this is only going to happen probably once. The, that final climatic duel against the main enemy will do this mechanic, mm -hmm. not every match sure, in the middle. Sure, You know, even something as simple as Wushu, has a component of back and forth. The nemesis mechanics? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I do this, this, and this. Okay, that's two details. Throw it to your nemesis. Nemesis does X, Y, and Z. That was three details. Throw it back to you. Okay, uh, this, this, and this. Great, two more details. Nemesis is out of ideas. Roll. So that kind of back and forth, I'm going to pull this deck and play this card, and my arbitrary chart on the side says that's two dice. My nemesis responds, this, this, and this. Oh, he only gets one die. I get this, this, and this. Two more die. I'm, I'm looking really good. It's still a roll. There's still a chance the, the opposed rolls could fail or have an interesting result. But how you're narrating, which could be part of how you're using this made-up card game mechanic, has an impact. And that would be a great way if you're also using it with those extended skill checks Maybe a, a benefit from winning that extended skill challenge is you have more options, or you start with the success, or you throw a penalty at him, something like that. Or it, it sets the maximum for you. Ooh, yeah. So you start with a maximum of two, but you can go up every time you succeed. Your maximum goes a little higher, which would give, eventually give you more dice to roll, mm -hmm. which increases your chances. So I do actually, I really like the Wushu thing. I, I think that is dependent on how close to a real game you're playing. If you're playing something that's really real, you're, you're actually playing Magic or you're actually playing Pokemon, then you're somewhat constricted by those real-world rules. But if you're just making stuff up, then that Wushu is great because you can go, oh, you played the Salamander Lizard. Well, I play my Draco Lich. And you can just make up crazy stuff that will be funny and you know interesting, hopefully, back and forth more easily if you have no limitations on what you're going to create, which, again, what Wushu facilitates so well. So yeah, uh, we had a ton of good ideas. I, I one or two at least. I I don't think we can conclusively say this is how to do it, but if we did, that would be really weird because we rarely ever come to a conclusion of this is how to do a thing <laughs> on these shows. Well, no, and but I don't think that's a lot of times what we're supposed to be doing. Like I feel like we're just trying to say this is how I think I would do it. Try them. Mm -hmm. It may not work. You know, you, you may try your own, you may try one of our suggestions, and it may be terrible, but now you know. And next time you can do it a little bit different, maybe a little bit better, and you'll eventually get to a point where it's what you want. Um, unfortunately, it's a lot of times it's more art than science, and there isn't just always a do this and you will have what the success that you want. 
But ultimately, I think this is a great place to explore because you can get some really cool story moments out of playing a game within a game. I'm less interested by what it means to play Magic the Gathering. I'm more interested by what it means to infiltrate a League of Assassins who also play Magic the Gathering. <laughs> that, yeah, that actually could be very interesting. And I do really like the idea of setting up that final tournament as like the, the conclusion of at least an arc of a game. Like I, I, when I, when he asked the questions, I started thinking already. It's like I could see that being very, very cool. So uh, to, to echo Caleb Scott, I hope we got somewhere near in the ballpark of what you were looking for. Hopefully, we've been helpful. Uh, and absolutely, we want to know what you end up doing and how it ends up working. I definitely am envisioning the. I'm assuming it's a bard for some reason, because the bard does it. The bard's playing cards. The rogue and the barbarian are running around fighting the thugs who are trying to stop the game. The The paladin is trying to talk his way into uh, the, the, uh, the judges of the game to try to schmooze his way in. I'm just seeing all these little different vignettes of the party being separated, but all filtering into this one card game that's so cool. So I hope that's what's happening. So please, please, please tell us if that's what it is. And if we're totally off base, tell us what's actually happening, because I'm still interested to know. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. We're going to go ahead and move into our second topic of the night. And that is, uh, this came to us from Jonathan over on our Google Plus page. And it wasn't a direct com question. It was just part of a conversation that we were having back and forth. And he brought up the idea that in fiction, a lot of times you will have... Uh, your characters defeat a creature or an enemy they really shouldn't be able to defeat through some sort of guile, ingenuity, or a lot of times just luck. And the classic example is defeating a vampire by keeping them awake past sunrise. They, they forget that it is sunrise because you've got into their lair, and then you start breaking windows. I know Fright Night, uh, I think both versions, that's how that ends. There's certainly various vampires have been defeated by sunlight and the breaking the window trick. So the, so it got me thinking, is this something that you could emulate in an RPG, particularly D&D, but there's, there's some others. And if you can, how could you and should you? Because I'm not sure that is a great model for an RPG because it feels a lot more like a story element that works great in fiction. Not sure it translates over, but that's what I wanted to talk about. So I'll turn it over to you, Caleb. Do you have any thoughts about A, can you do this? B, how would you do it? And three, <laughs> I did A, B, and three. <laughs> should you do Man, it? Man, it's just that kind of night, isn't it? It is. It is that kind of night. Man, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of how you just explained it until just now. And that set me off on a totally different thought process here. I think it's definitely possible to do. I think it lends itself to big, epic story moments that are really exciting. These are the memories that we have and we continue to share year after year. These are the stories we share at conventions, at the bar, after a day of gaming. Hey, did I ever tell you about that one time we killed that vampire in this totally off-the-wall way? Okay, here's how it happened. It, it's that kind of thing. So it needs to happen because it's cool to happen. The question is really, if you're setting up this kind of thing, how to do it? Because here's, here's where my thought process is. I give the PCs a monster that I know that they have no way of defeating through straight combat. Right there, that's the source of the problem. Why am I doing this? Am I doing it to try to send them on a series of quests to get stronger? Is this like Final Fantasy I where you fight the guy and he knocks you all down and you spend the whole game leveling to come back and fight him at the end? Is it that kind of early boss reveal? Or is it a, here's a guy you could never possibly kill. I want you to do this fetch quest to get the one magic item that can always kill this guy no matter what. Or are you trying to set up one of these crazy moments? If you're trying to set it up, I think that's what's wrong. That's my concern. Because that is basically saying, 
I have decided the one way that you can defeat my boss. And if you don't figure out what I was thinking, you will fail. And then either your players will figure it out instantly, and it's not exciting. They will never figure it out. They all die. Or you have to eventually tell them, which is also not exciting. So that is my concern. If you're playing the type of game that is very scripted, then I don't, I don't think it'll work. It's not organic in that, in that type of thing. Being able to have that moment of inspiration, wait a minute, if I trick the vampire into having a conversation and we roleplay all this dis- diplomacy and, hey, let's talk about this book, or hey, can I trick you into telling me a story? And then I can wait until dawn and have that, I'd break the window, did I get him, did I get him? That's cool. That's what you want. I don't want the GM telling me, okay, keep talking, make two diplomacy checks, and that'll keep him going for two hours, and then it's morning and go break the window. Right. And I think that that lends itself to the type of game that we have certainly endorsed, where you allow players to creatively narrate aspects of the world. Because I could totally see that happen, where they're fighting a vampire they shouldn't be able to defeat yet, because you try to create a living world, and it's not just a level-appropriate encounter. They decide to go attack the vampire, even though they have no business doing it. They get down in the basement, and they're fighting, and they're getting their butts handed to them. And somebody comes up with a great idea, and they just start talking. And then someone says, okay, well, there's there's got to be windows down here. There's always windows down here. There's always a chandelier. There's always a chandelier. So so they break them, and it's like, okay, yeah, that's that's perfect. That's, I, I couldn't have come up with a better way for that to happen. But I don't want the DM to say there's five black, you know, blacked out mirrors downstairs or blacked out windows. You have to break all five of them to defeat the creature. I don't, I just feel like if it's something that it's planned, it's very railroady, which again, I'm an advocate of ro- all railroading. It's not bad railroading. That to me feels like bad railroading where you have to defeat the monster. It's like a video game. This part's orange. Shoot it. Now this part's orange. Shoot that. That's not a role playing game. I was just going to say, setting up the there are five windows to break, that's the video game full motion video, and then you take over and shoot the windows while the vampire's throwing things at you. That's certainly fun. Uh, That seems to me like a cool fourth edition boss fight, where you set up the tactical environment and the tactical game can respond to that. Because 4th edition is really a, a tactical fighting simulator, so you can do that kind of thing. You can have big set pieces to interact with. A role-playing game like we're playing, we want that organic moment of inspiration. Now, the other thing that I was concerned about was, if I set up that there's a vampire, that there's no way for these PCs to kill, and I'm expecting them to try to come up with some crazy plan... I can tell you, guaranteed, the PCs are just going to run in and try to fight the vampire. Because no plans, uh, no no plan can successfully survive encounters with the players. Yes. So setting up a big boss fight and trying to get them to figure something out is just going to go south. I, I mean, even in, in games you've run, Michael, uh, you've set up boss fights and you expected them to go very differently and players just ran in and started swinging. I'm thinking of a very specific moment from Made Men. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that happens sometimes. But this makes me think that maybe the system might have not come into play here as well. Obviously, a Call of Cthulhu game, that it thematically makes a lot of sense where the players are going to be put across something they have no business fighting whether it be a vampire or some sort of Cthulian monster but D&D is even though I run games where again you can't always just kill everything it, it's that's sort of the assumption that most of the time if there's something in front of you it's a bag of hit points you've at least got a shot of taking them out uh, games like Fate might actually make a better model for this because you could have aspects of you know vulnerable to light is attached to the creature that they discover through role play. They then tag it to break said window, and now they've they've. It still happens a bit more organically than a D and D model. Well, it's also all about how you set up this potential encounter. So, if I'm running a game where I know that there is a vampire, and it's too high a level right now, but I want to introduce these characters to this potential boss down the road it's my responsibility to provide information in the story that tells the players this is dangerous 
So I, I need to have someone telling a tale of, of how this vampire has killed the most powerful warriors in the land. Or I need to have them meet a, a wise cleric or wizard who can give them research about this creature. So I, I feel that if I want to set up or potentially set up some kind of big thing like this, it's also on the shoulders of the GM to make sure that the facts are known. Yeah, I, what I'm thinking is that there's two versions of this, and there might be more, but these are the two I think we've kind of touched on. The you don't know what you're up against, and the only way you can succeed is by luck. And that's the you go into the vampire's crypt, you don't really know what you're dealing with, and you get lucky and you break the windows. And then there's the Clash of the Titans model, which is what you were just talking about, where, okay, you're about to fight the Kraken. Nobody can kill the Kraken. Kraken is an undefeatable enemy. Unless you manage to somehow kill a Gorgon and take their head. And in that case, it's basically a one-step fetch quest. But in D&D, you could certainly make that a multi-tiered, you know, five-level advancement. you got to get this item, which unlocks this, which will then give you access to this, which then will let you kill the Medusa so you have its head. You know, that that's simply, that's an outline of a campaign, which I think has been done a, a million times. I think that's a little bit different, but in the same wheelhouse. It's also kind of the Mega Man principle, where if you beat the bosses in the right order you get an advantage. But if for some reason... Bubble Man. No one ever thinks Bubble Man. Exactly. But you could still fight the bosses however you want. That's part of the metagame of Mega Man that existed before we had internet and hint books. You know, you just stumbled your way through and tried to figure it out. And then suddenly it clicked, oh, if I'd fought this guy first, I would have had the right weapon against this guy. I once had a $300 plus phone bill from calling Nintendo Power's hotline. My mom wanted to beat me to death. I'm I'm surprised you're still here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think with this type of theory, though, we're kind of getting away from the, the original point. We're, we're, tr- we're kind of evolving it into how do we facilitate these bigger moments in a way that makes sense instead of should these crazy off-the-wall random moments happen? So if if that's really the argument, yes, I think crazy off-the-wall moments should happen because in an organic game, things happen. However, I think how much influence the GM takes to push these crazy off-the-wall moments, that's where the, the problem comes, and that's where you have to be very, very careful. Yeah, I think that, again, going by the two different avenues we've kind of touched on, one of them is totally normal. I mean, I, I don't know if we necessarily think about it in that way, but I mean, yeah, it's a typical big, big, bad, evil guy. You need to get this, that, and the other, and then you can defeat him. That's very traditional. There's nothing really unusual or exceptional about that. I think what we were kind of focused on, or, or should be, is the other method where you're fighting something that you cannot defeat by hitting it with sticks at this level. You probably shouldn't be able to kill it at all, but are you going to allow your players through creativity, through luck, or guile to defeat something you had not planned on them defeating? Is it is it this is this the undefeatable monster that is not actually undefeatable? Well, I think this kind of goes back to something you said about the card games. If it doesn't happen all the time, then yes. If the PCs are hitting the big giant monster with sticks and there's no way for them to kill it, but one of them comes up with this really creative idea and you reward their creativity by saying, yes, that works. That shouldn't happen every week. Because then at that point, it becomes we're just hitting things until we come up with a better idea, right? At that point, it's not that moment of inspiration that was really cool that got rewarded, now the game has shifted to how do we figure out these crazy off-the-wall ways to kill things. I think that's one of the things where D&D as a system, again, is one of the things that you have to be aware of. Because if you have a creature that that's, that is so powerful that this becomes a cool encounter, it's probably just going to kill the PCs very quickly. But for this to feel the right way, in my mind, is that this needs to be a battle that is prolonged. You need the characters to be able to hit it with a stick several times and clearly see that they are not succeeding. But 
escape isn't really an option. So then they're forced to do something out of the box and then drop a chandelier, open the, the, the magic thing that they said never, you know, cross the streams, even though you don't cross the streams, Ray. Okay, at this point, we need to cross the streams, break the windows, whatever the case may be. You have to give them time to fail to create the need and urgency for a, a plan B. And D&D does not model that very well. Because in D&D, when you fail, you're dead. A lot of times, yes. Unless you're powerful enough that you can take a few hits. But then if you're that powerful, you probably can kill this thing by hitting it with sticks. The game is designed in a lot of ways for that to be the normal model. And again, I, I like to play the game where you might run into a red dragon at first level. You're not really supposed to fight the red dragon, but they exist. They're there, so you might run upon one. But I would think in most traditional D&D games, you fight a level-appropriate encounter. It may be a little bit higher, but it's still possible. This is a case where you're fighting something that should not be defeatable by you at this level unless the DM plans for it or allows for it. You also have to take into effect that the way Dungeons & Dragons is built is that when you kill something, you get experience. So if your players attack something or figure out a way to kill something that is way above their level, the logistics of the system then give them the rewards of killing that thing. So you're also kind of skewing the game that way. If level 1 players figure out some crazy way to take out a level 10 red dragon... These level one players have jumped to, what, level five overnight in one encounter? Is that fair? Is that right? Is that mechanically sound? From a flavor standpoint, I kind of see the value of, hey, these commoners killed this dragon. They're heroes. But in the story, I don't want them to be competent enough to keep doing that. Because I think a better story is, oh, shit, everyone thinks we're dragon slayers. What do we do? Yeah, and for me, that's that's the more interesting story as well. And I'll agree with you there, because that's a really entertaining story. But if the mechanics say, oh, well, you killed a thing, and it, now you have 10,000 experience, and oh, now you're level 5, and oh, now killing this thing doesn't matter. <sighs> have you ruined the story? Have you changed the story? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I think if in the moment a player comes up with a really cool creative idea, reward it and go with it. I think if you are trying to create that moment intentionally with an opposition that would otherwise be undefeatable unless this crazy creative thing happens, that is not necessarily the right choice to make. So so I agree. I don't particularly enjoy playing the tactical version of D&D. That's not what I enjoy. I know plenty of people do. And that may be our disconnect. There very well may be people who would enjoy an encounter that should, quote unquote, be undefeatable. But the GM, who is good at that, has set up the battlefield with, you know, uh, terrain aspects like you know if you stand next to this thing you get a plus one i know fourth edition had those all the time as environmental you know this thing will empower your uh, necrotic energy blah 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 so if someone set up a very tactical map that was like a big set piece encounter where the creature should be more powerful than you but through a combination of luck great tactics a great utilization utilization of resources that you could be successful I can totally see a a certain group of players loving that. And if they succeed, holy crap, that's going to be the greatest story they've ever told. And if they fail, it's still a glorious attempt. But for me, that's not the type of game I enjoy. So I would not want to play in that. Even if it's done well, I probably wouldn't enjoy it. Because I feel like that's where you say, it's like a video game. You have to do these steps to win. There's no room for player ingenuity you know, if you don't stand next to this pillar on the second round, you all die. So you have to you have to get there no matter what. That's that's the fun is can I get there, not the role playing interaction, which is the part I enjoy. So for me, I agree. I do not think it's a great idea to try to set it up where the DM has pre decided these magical switches have to be flipped in this order to win. But I want to have a situation where I can just create something 
that would allow some sort, even if it's just a middling victory. Maybe you just run the vampire off. You cause the dragon to run away. It doesn't mean you have to stab it through its heart and then you now are 15th level because you killed it, but it could be we survived what we should not have, which could be a great start of a campaign. Because I definitely think this is a lower level in in D&D where this makes sense. At 7th level, I think they're going to hit everything with a stick until it dies. Yeah, we're not necessarily just talking about success by killing. We're talking about success by survival. So so that's something that needs to be incorporated as well. That's a great point. I think that this type of situation could really happen at every level as long as it's something that is organic and in the moment. I, I think a bunch of high-level PCs fighting an appropriate high-level encounter could still have that oh, wait a minute, if I run over here and do this thing, wouldn't this, this, and this happen? And wouldn't that let us escape? Sure, says the GM. That's a really cool idea. Let's do it. couple rolls. You narrate it really well. I'll give you a bonus. Let's go for it. Now, something we haven't really discussed and I think is a little bit different, but we should just address it briefly, is kind of like the multi-tier boss fight. Uh, again, a very video gamey term, but that is a... Ve- Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a viable tool to let your PCs and players fight something bigger than they should be able to. As a great example, remember Dead Center? Yes. Remember that dragon fight? Yes. That was a multi-tier boss fight. I didn't do it very well because I was trying to figure it out, but the principle was there. I, I put a dragon in that was way above your level, but... I broke it into three tiers. And in the first tier, he had so many hit points and this type of uh, attack from his monster stat block. In the next tier, he didn't recover, but he had more additional hit points and different attacks. And in the final tier, he had his last chunk of hit points and his last chunk of attacks available to him. And I, I gave that to you guys to say, here's the fun of fighting a dragon. But... You have the freedom to rest and recover in between. And it was that old school 8-bit hit the boss until he flashes pink and orange and you know he's almost dead and now we're getting there. But you can maybe find a health power up in between stages. So, So that's another tool that I think can be used as well if you want to try to create a big cool fight and not necessarily say I hope a cool thing gets invented. Again, I I agree with that. I think if you're going to do it in D&D gamey terms, that's probably the way that makes the most sense. And I think it should at least be mentioned, because we need to wrap up soon for timing here, that usually in these cases, the big bad evil guy monster thing thinks that the, the characters are so far beneath them that it's okay to toy with them. And that hubris and that arrogance is often what leads to their downfall because they cannot fathom that they are defeatable because if you know if, if i just walk in the room and the dragon just goes uses his breath weapon we're probably all dead but the fact that the dragon wants to play with us a little bit and wants to tease us and torture us in some way that gives us time as well to sort of figure out what our options are rather than just we all run in and hit it with sticks and he goes ah screw you and kills us all you got to catch a monologuing <laughs> yeah exactly get the monologuing get them focused on other things you know, even if they don't really buy into your bluffs and your diplomacy checks, the dragon might still entertain them just because it's fun. You know, uh, I think of Loki. I watched the first Avengers again today. Loki always thought he was smarter than everyone else, and he enjoyed showing them he was smarter than everyone else, which is what led to his downfall in most cases. He was able to be deceived because he felt he was not. And that makes him a very memorable villain rather than just, oh, this thing can kill us. As These are the attacks it has. This is who it is type of a thing. So anyway, any any final words on this? I know this was more of just a discussion. I don't think we gave much advice at all in this case. Uh, But do you have any final words on this before we move on? Well, we've said it a couple times here. I I think trying to force a a big memorable moment, a big inventive creative thing, that's where the danger occurs. And, And I think the big challenge is making this happen in the right type of gaming environment. It's harder to do in a level-based D20 game. It's easier to do in a less structured or a differently structured set of rules like Fate or Wushu or, you know, hey, even Exalted. It's 
that system lends itself to those big cool things happening. So you have to really understand the limitations and guidelines of the mechanics you're using when you're trying to engineer certain types of encounters and situations. And then I think the final thing that I would say is this is somewhat beholding on what your characters know or what they think they know. If they know they're fighting the Kraken, then they're probably going to plan for that and they're going to try to make it a fetch quest and they're going to try to figure it out. If they don't know that they're fighting a vampire or let's say a polymorphed dragon, so they think they're just fighting the king's vizier, not knowing that they're a polymorphed dragon, they're more likely to encounter it before they're ready and that's when you have the opportunity for this type of encounter. If they know it's a polymorph dragon, then they're not going to do not going to do that until they're ready, which makes it a fetch quest. So keeping some of these things hidden, I think, adds to the the possibility of this happening in your game. So yeah, just something to consider. We are running long on time. Both of us can have housefuls of guests and 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 plans. So we're actually not going to read any new reviews this week. We have some. Thank you very, very much. We also have several new ratings, which there's no review attached, but our numbers are going up. We continue to see more of those. So thank you. And we do still have our Catacon Gen Con uh, review drive happening as well. So remember, every 10 new reviews, ratings don't count towards that, reviews that we get, uh, we are going to have uh, additional Catacon badges and a Gen Con prize that we're going to give away. I think July 15th was the day that we set. I'm pretty sure at this point we've crossed the second one. If not, we're darn close. So we could have as many as three if people continue to give us five-star ratings and reviews, either on Stitcher or on iTunes. So thank you very much for those that have. And if you haven't yet, why not? Because you should. Yes, we love reviews. Because I get to read them and and make silly jokes, and they're fun. We'll definitely catch up on those in the next episode. Absolutely. So, uh, Caleb, any final words overall before we wrap this up and get out of here? No, no. I think we talked about a lot of great stuff tonight. Um, I think we shared some good insights, some good opinions. And if nothing else, we gave a lot of interesting seeds for adventures. I would agree. So for Caleb, this has been Michael, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG... Our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com and reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google Plus at vrpgacademy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Right.